All right, I think we're going. Yep. Well, good morning, church. Grateful to be with you here at our online service. Um, we are excited to continue in our series on doctrine, but before we do, uh, just wanted to make a quick announcement that we have our church members meeting coming up uh, on October the 25th. That's a Sunday evening, and uh, want to invite all of you to be a part of that. If you're a church member, we've got some real important things to talk through as a church. It's been a crazy time. The Lord's brought some really cool, unique opportunities to us as a church body, and so I wanted to um, have a chance to discuss those, and our leaders and elders will be there to talk about what implications those might have for us as a church. So really exciting things. So make sure you register for that so we know uh, childcare. It's going to be at Northway Church at 5 o'clock on Sunday evening, October the 25th. So hopeful uh, that you can make it to that. Um, well, we've been moving through uh, a series on doctrine, and we've been looking, uh, and essentially we will go through all the way from Genesis to Revelation as we look at this, and we're going to be uh, looking at that even today in this series. And so I hope that you have sensed our hearts as church leaders that we would be a people that would be grounded in uh, the big ideas of who God is, that we would be a people that are rooted and grounded in um, who Jesus is, who God is, how he ma has made us, how he's formed us and created us, what his hope for us is. And so we are, um, we are journeying through, we're, we're seven weeks in, and we are getting to a very, very important doctrine here today as we've been walking through many in weeks pre previous. But today we're getting to really the crux of our entire faith, um, we're getting to the focal point of all that our faith is built upon, and that is the cross. The fact that God, this God that we've been looking at, that created us, that made us, that placed us in a perfect garden, that provided all the means for life that were necessary for us, that provided for us a family and a spouse who has spoken to us, given us his word, who has given us his very image that we're created in the very image of God and given us community and dominion over the earth that we might rule. And now we're getting to the place where this God that has given us tremendous grace and blessing, that even when we fell in sin, uh, God still took care of us and still poured out his grace, that this God this incarnate God that we looked at last week that came as a man, this man, fully God and fully man, came to die. And he died in the most brutal way on a Roman cross and was executed. And so this morning, we're going to look at why did he die? What are the implications of that? And so today we look at the most important event in the history of the world the end of the life of Jesus Christ, which is, in fact, the very beginning of our life with God. Um, now, what I want to do is um, I want to look at uh, really a survey of the scriptures and look at how and why the fact that Jesus would come and that Jesus would die was in the very mind of God from the very beginning. 
This was his plan. This is his sovereign good plan of how he would reconcile sinners back to himself, how he would reconcile those that were lost and find them and bring them into the very fold of God. Um, We see this plan of God's redemption uh, through atonement, through sacrifice, uh, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It is a mega theme in our Bible. It is a doctrinal reality that governs and guides and shows us who God is and what he's like and how he provides for us a way back to him. And so uh, we're going to look at the prophecy of the the atonement in the Old Testament. Uh, We are going to look at the act of the atonement in the Gospels. And we're going to look at the explanation of the atonement in the epistles. The atonement is... Uh, atoning is a sacrifice given to please God and to atone for our sins and wrongdoings. And essentially it's blood needs to be shed because at the very beginning, you remember, uh, God looked at you and I and our parents, Adam and Eve, and says, if you eat of this fruit, of this tree, the consequence is death. And so in order to um, remove uh the consequence from us, God has given to us uh, atoning sacrifice through the entire scriptures so that you and I could be forgiven of our trespass and could be brought back into the fold of God. And we see it all the way at the end when we even see the lamb standing as if slain in the book of Revelation. And what this is called... um, is the crimson thread of our Bible. We see the crimson thread that runs and is in our scriptures in every single book of our Bible. Um, Now we've got a lot of work to do, so we're gonna jump in um, and look at the crimson thread, the atonement of Christ, the crimson thread of the Bible. 1 Peter uh, 1, verse 20 says this that the cross of Christ uh, was in the mind of God at the very beginning. Listen to this, 1 Peter 1.20, that Jesus Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, right? That Jesus, that he would come, he would be our he would, he would take on flesh and he would one day die was known before the foundation of the world. It was in the plan of God from the very, very beginning. John tells us in Revelation that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world and that grace was granted to us, Paul said, from all eternity. So the lamb was slain in the mind of God. It was his purpose that God had a plan, and that plan involved creation, it involved sin, and it would involve the atonement of his son. And in doing so, and in doing this, it would reveal God to all of intelligent creation, to you and I. That the cross would show the justice of God. The cross would show the wrath of God. The cross would show the love of God and the holiness of God. Um, 
and the Son of God would be the revelation of who God is exactly to all of creation. And so the crimson thread, this idea of Christ coming to lay his life down for you and I was in the mind of God in the very beginning. Just like, um, just like in Romeo and Juliet, uh, that story, the very end, the, the plan of the writer, uh, the end of Romeo and Juliet was in Shakespeare's mind. He knew their beginning and he knew the end of the story. In Shakespeare's mind, when he began the story, he began with two enemy families. And he had in his mind, as he wrote this story, the scene in the tomb with two bodies lying there dead on one another. And the repentance of parents and the reconciliation of two enemy families. As he penned that story, Shakespeare knew the end. And so it is with God that he has a plan and that even now he's working it out. And the pinnacle of that plan of reconciliation and redemption of men is found at the pinnacle of the cross, the cross of Christ. Now, we also have in the Crimson Thread this idea of atonement is at the very beginning. We see foreshadowings of this in Genesis chapter one and chapter two. Why? Because in Genesis chapter one and chapter two, we have two trees. The first tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is a test. And this is a test to see, will you break your dependence on God? And then the temptation of the fallen angel Lucifer came and tempted Adam and Eve that if they just chose to eat of this tree, you'll know good and evil and you'll be just like God. You'll be God. You don't need to listen to what God said. You can have all that you need in and of yourself. You don't need dependence on God. You need to be independent. You need to have your own way. You need to call your own shots. You can be the arbiter of right and wrong. You can decide. You don't need God's standard. You don't need God's say. You don't need God's help. You can make it just fine without him. And you can have the final word, Satan told us, the serpent told us in the garden. And so there was a tree and it offered men life without God. And then there was another tree in this garden. And it was offered as a gift. And if you ate of this tree, you would have life everlasting. It's a tree of life. And your life would not come by the breaking free from God and your independence from God, but it would come by receiving a gift from the tree that God had given to you, that he provided for you that he told you is good and true. It's been said that man was lost in a garden and man was also found in a garden. That man was lost on a tree and he was found on a tree. A tree of a cross. And so today we are still, in so many words, offered two trees. The lie that life comes from the exaltation of yourself in your own way, in your own independence, pushing God to the backwoods of your life. I don't need you, God. I just want you in the background. You can be my co-pilot, but I'm really in charge. 
And yet God offers man immortality and life. And he offers life from the tree of Jesus Christ by which he was slain for him, for you and I. That we can receive the gift of God that he has provided for us that is eternal life. Um, But sin occurred in that garden, didn't it? With our first parents. And we come to uh, this other point of the crimson thread. That whenever man sinned, God spoke. In Genesis 3.15, we've looked at it for the last few weeks. Um, And God says this, when sin enters the picture, God then speaks. And he says, I will put hatred between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring, fallen mankind. So that's the result of sin, right? Hatred, rebellion, independence. Uh, But here's the good news. But, God says, he, one man, giving us a glimpse of one to come. One man will come that will escape the fall of humanity and bring back life everlasting. The promise of the one tree, the tree of life. And God says, he shall bruise your head and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. In other words, I'm going to give conquest to sin and death and Satan to a man, to a man. He'll be born of a woman, seed of a woman. It's gonna be a man born without sin and he will strike the serpent in the head. Uh, And the serpent will strike his heel and he will die, but out of his death, out of this one that will come from the seed of woman, out of his death will come eternal life and will crush the enemy once and for all. So here in the very beginning in the garden, God told us that he will conquer sin and Satan and death by the gift of this man that only this man can bring. You do nothing. You and I bring nothing to the table. One is coming that will do this for us. He will stand where Adam could not. This one that is coming will stand where you and I could not, where we always would fall in temptation because we inherited it from our first father, Adam. This verse in Genesis 3.15 is called the Proto-Evangel or the first gospel. Salvation will come by a representative dying man. The promise made all the way in the beginning. So here we see in the garden, the very beginning, what's the oldest religion? It's Christianity. It comes one verse after sin. God speaks to us and provides a means of hope of the gospel. One verse after sin enters the picture. This will be the man who will give you victory. And then what's interesting, as you continue to read in Genesis, God then provides a sacrifice for Adam and Eve. Here's where we have the idea of atonement. He said, the day that you do this, the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. Yet here they stand alive, don't they, in the garden? Because what God does is he takes a lamb. This lamb was killed by God, shed blood, He killed the lamb, he skinned the lamb, and he says to Adam and Eve, who were naked, and they were now ashamed of their sin, their eyes were opened to their sin, 
and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. They tried to fashion for themselves a way to hide their shame and hide from God and hide from one another. And God said, accept this gift that I provided for you. The gift of life that came through the shedding of blood of this innocent lamb to cover your shame. And that gift, that gift that we see the very beginning in Genesis would someday be personified in the seed of the woman that is promised in Genesis 3.15. And interestingly enough, at this point, Adam looks at woman and names her. Up until this point, she had no name. And Adam looked at her and he said her name would be Eve or life because all of life would come through her. So from the woman would come life. And then we have in Genesis chapter four, as we move on in this crimson thread, there are children of Adam and Eve. You've got Cain and Abel. And what had been a promise and a sacrifice by God had now become an institution of religion. And so first is the anticipation of the offspring of the coming of the one who will come and die for man's sin. And so Cain and Abel had, blood, had, had a blood sacrifice. Abel offered up the shedding of blood and God was pleased. Cain did not like submitting to his little brother. And so Cain offers up the good works of his own hands, fig leaves, if you will. His own works offered up to God and saying, look what I did. Look what I did for you. And the Bible said that God looked upon those sacrifices and it created great hatred between the brothers because God did not look well upon one of them. And the child of works, the child of uh, independence, murdered the child of faith. And so this would continue. The shedding of blood for the reconciliation to God for man's sin. And this would continue all the way through the Old Testament until it would be finished when the shadow would become the substance and the promised one of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We even see it in Abraham. In Genesis 22, he's given a test. God says, take your son Isaac, your only begotten son whom you love, offer him up as a burnt offering on Moriah, on Mount Moriah. Now, Moriah is a hill that today is in the city of Jerusalem. And so Abraham rode three days to Jerusalem where there would someday be the temple mount where sacrifice would be offered, the same hill where Jesus himself would be offered, Mount Moriah. And there on Moriah, he took his only begotten son, Isaac. And the Bible tells us that Isaac laid the wood on his back and he took fire in his hand that Abraham did and took a knife in his hand and they would walk up that hill in perfect communion with his only son. And they walked up that hill in Jerusalem and there the son who carried the wood for his death on his back came to the top of the hill and asks his father and looks at him, Father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Where is the atoning lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. 
God will give us what is necessary. And he raised the knife and God stopped Abraham's hand and restrained him. And God said, now I know you fear me, that you have not withheld your only begotten son. 2,000 years later, God the Father would walk with God the Son up that same hill of Calvary, Mount Moriah, Golgotha, there in Jerusalem. And God would take the knife and God would take the fire of death and judgment and Christ would lay himself down and God would provide the sacrifice. God would provide the lamb. And that is the first time in all of the Bible that the actual word lamb is mentioned. Isaac asks his father, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb that we desperately need? And all throughout the Old Testament, that question, where is the lamb, is the one to be answered. Where is the lamb that will take away our sin? Where is he? And that question gets answered in the Gospels by John the Baptist when he looks at Jesus of Nazareth and declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's come. The one whom we've all been waiting for. God's plan moving forward. Now we go 1,500 years before Christ in the book of Exodus. Israel is in bondage. They are abused by Pharaoh. Moses is chosen to lead his people out of this bondage. Pharaoh refuses to let them go. God sends plagues. And the last of these plagues is the plague of death. The death of the firstborn of everyone in the nation. Terrifying. But God once again provides a way to escape judgment. There was hope and the hope came from a lamb. That would be, you would take a perfect, spotless, blameless lamb without imperfection. You would sacrifice that lamb. He would die, and then you would take the blood of that pure, innocent lamb, and you would make a cross of blood on your doorposts. And when the angel of death that was promised in this last plague of death would come, the angel of death would pass over every house that had the cross of blood on the doorposts. That that lamb died in the place of the one who would have died so that you didn't have to, so that the firstborn didn't have to. And the Bible tells us that 1,500 years later, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That his body was broken for us and his blood was poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins once and for all. And then as you move forward in the story of redemption, you see uh, Israel makes a journey to a place called Sinai. And here there is idolatry and there is the wrath of God and the nation stands guilty for bowing to false idols and for believing not the truth of God, but for, uh, but for other gods, lesser gods, idols. And there's a man named Moses 
who stands before God at that mountain and says, God, take me. I will die in their place if you will just let these people go free. And God says in Deuteronomy 18, that a day will come when I will raise up a man just like Moses. Just as Moses took his stance between God and man, there will be another someday like Moses who will stand between God and man and say, God, take my life that these people might live. There was one day coming, one that would die in our stead. And then on that mountain, God would give us um, the law, religion, a tabernacle, so that Israel could approach a holy God that they were not able to approach in their sin, that they would stand in their tents and a high priest would go in on their behalf and take the shedding of blood on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which was just a few days ago that celebrated. And he would come out before God with the shed blood of an innocent lamb and an offering for the forgiveness of God's people. And God, through that sacrifice, would see his people through the shed blood on that mercy seat and the sins of God's people would be atoned for. And this would happen year after year. Later came David and the writings of the prophets arose. We have Isaiah, we have Jeremiah, Hosea, later Daniel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, the minor prophets. And the writings of the prophets wrote to warn God's people of their sin and to show them why judgment was going to come and yet giving them hope someday that this Messiah would come. And the prophets spoke of a very strange Messiah. They spoke of a Messiah that would die in the place of his people, but would also at the very same time reign in glory. The people did not understand. They did not understand how a great king of God could die, how a great, the great one they were waiting for would come to lay his life down. They couldn't put two and two together. The same way that Peter and the apostles could not understand when Jesus said, I will go up to Jerusalem, I will be betrayed, I will be beaten, I will be spit upon, scourged, die, and on the third day rise again by the predetermined plan of God the Father. We say, hallelujah, what a savior. They said, this cannot be. What? They did not understand how life could come from death. Isaiah said that we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And God has called the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And his name, this one that the, all of our iniquity would fall upon, would be called Mighty God. Jeremiah said, he shall be called the Lord of righteousness. Micah said he would be from Bethlehem. He would be a shepherd king and his goings forth would be from eternity. 
that he was preexistent. Ezekiel said he would be the good shepherd that would lay down his life for his sheep. Daniel said he would be cut off and have nothing. Zechariah said that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And God's people would someday look at him who they had pierced. David said that God would pierce his hands and feet. And what he did not owe, he would pay for in full. And that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David would say that God would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay, that he would raise from the dead. And David said that he would sit at the right hand of the throne of God until God makes all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. And he would one day, this this pierced king would return in glory to judge all of his enemies. And then he came. Jesus. He was born that first Christmas. He was the child of David. He was the seed of Abraham. He was the seed of woman, not of man. Virgin born in order to escape the sin of Adam. The wise men said, where she sat is born the king of the Jews. And when we saw his star, we've come to worship him. He was God in the flesh, the son of God eternal, who took to himself humanity, proved who he was by his words and his works. His message was to call God's people to repentance. But they wanted the blessing, but they did not like the idea of repentance, much like you and I. We want all the blessing, but we don't want repentance. They did not like all the talk of a cross and death and atonement. And so just as it was written, Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver to the Romans. And there, like Peter said, according to the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, he died. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. A lion, Jesus, fully God, fully man, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sovereign, yet fully man that can sympathize with every single one of us. A lion dies like a lamb. And he, Jesus, would become the Passover lamb that through his blood we might have life and life everlasting through faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. The seed of the woman that through his death and resurrection crushes the serpent's head like the promise in Genesis 3.15. He would become like David and Moses and Abraham, one that would lay down his life. And the shadows of the Old Testament would disappear and the substance of the new reality, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and our great sacrifice would come in the flesh. And the Bible says of him, he whom the law, Moses, and the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, this is the one. He is the fulfillment of all of it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the manifestations of Jesus. They show us who he is. Romans through Jude are the explanations of Jesus. All that he has accomplished, this is what 
it means for all of life. And the story of, of, in Revelation is the story of how Jesus will one day come back. In the book of Revelation, John looks into heaven and he sees the heavenly company. He sees the church. He sees this raptured in glory. And John sees one standing between the throne of God and the heavenly company. And he looks and John closes this book as one standing in the middle. And John says, I saw a a lamb standing as if slain, still interceding still there for you and I. He saw a sacrifice alive from the dead. He saw mortal wounds on an immortal man. He saw the person of Christ. And the Bible says that all of heaven sings, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Church, it is a Christ who dies that saves the pinnacle of all of redemption. Jesus on the cross. God dies that you and I might have life. It says that all who look upon him and believe by faith will have life. And they pierced this wounded king, this one who laid his life down to vanquish sin. And he rises to heaven to rule right now at the right hand of the throne of God. So how can you have life from the most awful act in human history? Because it is God himself who dies for his creation. Church, God has given us eternal life and life is found in his son, his only begotten son. The son has come to die that we might live. And that's how you avail yourself. Not by your own work, not by trying harder, not by doing more, but by giving yourself wholly by faith on his finished work on the cross. Not your work, not your fig leaf, so to speak, but on the sacrifice provided for you by God himself that was in his very mind and plan from the very beginning. So church, don't come to God with your good works and your good ideas. Come with your empty hands and own up to all that you've done that have wronged him and wronged others and even wronged yourself and say, God, I need your help. I need that which you provided for me. You do that and he will clothe you with everlasting. That's the crimson thread. From everlasting to everlasting, In the mind of God was Jesus Christ, our substitute, our Savior, our Lord, who now is still interceding for us at the right hand of God because we still need him every day. All the sacrifice, all the blood that was shed, all the shadows were become a reality in Jesus and he is now ready to save those who come by faith alone. If you have not given your life to this one that has come, Bend a knee now, close your eyes and say, God, I need you. Jesus, I accept you. Jesus, I, I want to know you. Jesus, I love you. 
and beg him to come into your life and accept his sacrifice given on your behalf that you might have life with God everlasting. His body broken for us, his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins that in him we might have eternal life. That's the good news of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for sending your only begotten son. Thank you, God, that you, in your mind, in your brilliant, eternal, everlasting plan, knew that he would be the answer to all of our longings and that in doing so, it would illumine your goodness, your mercy, and your grace for us, the undeserving, that we could come by faith alone, by the finished work of your son that he did, which we could not do for ourselves. We praise you. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oh boy.